You are listening to the sermon podcast for Salem Presbyterian Church in Winston-Salem. Thanks for listening. To learn more about our church, visit salempresws.org. That's salempresws.org. We believe preaching is best when experienced as part of the larger drama of God's people gathering. Something spiritually unique happens when God's people are together. We meet each Sunday to let the liturgy shape us, to hear preaching, and to take the Lord's Supper. And these acts are more robust when done together. Join us Sunday evenings at 5 p.m. in downtown Winston-Salem at 600 Holly Avenue. El coro. ¿Qué es eso que sube por el desierto semejante a una columna de humo, entre aromas de mirra y incienso, entre exóticos perfumes? Miren, es el carruaje de Salomón. Viene escoltando por 60 guerreros, escogidos entre los más valientes de Israel. Todos ellos portan espadas y han sido adiestrados para el combate. Cada uno lleva la espada al cinto por causa de los peligros de la noche. Salomón mismo se hizo el carruaje con finas maderas de Líbano. Hizo de plata las columnas y de oro los soportes. El asiento los tapizó de púrpura y su interior fue decorado con esmero para las hijas de Jerusalén. Salga mujeres de Sion, contemplen al rey de Salomón. Lleva puesta la corona que le ciñó su madre el día en que contrajo nupcias, el día en que se alegró su corazón. El amado. Cuán bella eres, amada mía, cuán bella eres. Tus ojos tras el velo son dos palomas, tus cabellos son como los rebaños de cabras que retosan en los montes de Galá. Tus dientes son como ovejas recién trasquiladas que ascienden luego de haber sido bañadas. Cada una de ellas tiene su pareja, ninguna de ellas está sola. Tus labios son cual cinta escarlata, tus palabras me tienen hechizado, tus mejillas tras el velo parecen dos mitades de granadas. Es palabra de Dios. So I'm going to be reading Psalm of Psalms, uh, chapter 3, verse 6, to chapter 4, verse 4. This is the Divine Romance Passion Translation. Um, condoned by Daniel Paul, so enough said. <laughs> Who is this one ascending from the wilderness in the pillar of the glory cloud? He's fragrant with the anointing oils of myrrh and frankincense, more fragrant than all the spices of the merchant. Look, it's the king's marriage carriage. The love seat surrounded by 60 champions, the mightest of Israel's hosts, like pillars of protection. They stand ready with swords to defend the king and his fiancée from every terror of the night. The king made his mercy seat for himself out of the finest wood that will not decay. Pillars of smoke like silver mist, a canopy of golden glory dwells above it. The place where they sit together is sprinkled with crimson. Love and mercy cover his carriage, blanketing his tabernacle throne. The king himself has made it for those who will become his bride. Rise up, Zion's maidens, brides-to-be. Come and feast your eyes on this king as he passes in procession on his way to his wedding. This is a day filled with overwhelming joy, the day of his greatest gladness. 
Listen, my dearest darling, you're so beautiful. You are beauty itself to me. Your eyes are like gentle doves behind your veil. What devotion I see each time I gaze upon you. You are like sacrifice ready to be offered. When I look at you, I see you have taken my fruit and tasted my word. Your life has become clean and pure, like a land washed and newly shorn. You now show grace and balance with truth on display. Your lips are as lovely as Rahab's scarlet ribbon, speaking mercy, speaking grace. The words of your mouth are as refreshing as an oasis. What pleasure you bring to me. I see your blushing cheeks open like the hats of a pomegranate, showing through your veil of tender meekness. When I look at you, I see your inner strength, so stately and strong. You are secure as David's fortress. Your virtues and grace cause a thousand famous soldiers to surrender to your beauty. The word of the Lord. So uh, we're going, obviously, through the, the Song of Songs, which is part of the uh, wisdom literature of the Old Testament. And I mentioned last week um, this Vogue article that I had read about poly, uh, polyamory, um, polyamorous marriage. Um, consensual non-monogamy is a term that's often used. Uh, and in 2020, uh, Somerville, Massachusetts, which is like a northern suburb of Boston, um, they actually passed a city ordinance that recognized uh, and legalized and gave rights to uh, people in polyamorous marriages, which is more, in other words, more than, it could be two men and women, two women and men, three women, three men. Uh, but the, uh, the mayor or the council member who, who helped push this legislation through said, it is, um, it is not our place to tell people what is or what is not family. And I mention that because in our day, you know, narratives about uh, sexuality and romance are highly contested. I don't need to tell you all that. Uh, obviously, uh, there's a lot of different cross, you know, currents uh, on what it is that um, is important about sex and romance. There's questions about even is lifelong, uh, you know, covenant important for a marriage? Is that, is that, a, good, is that a bad idea? That we make it a lifelong expectation for marriage. Uh, that's, that's in debate. Whether there's gender diversity in marriage is up for debate. Whether it's a better or a good thing to have a male and a female in marriage or not. And then obviously now even monogamy is up for debate. And apparently over half the people in America are for uh, polyamorous marriage. So probably we're going to move down that road at the level of the Supreme Court. My point in saying all this is that um, we are not alone in, in this, um, that in, in Solomon's day, there was also a large number of narratives about what sexuality and romance was like. And um, the cultures around them, that were Canaanite or Egyptian, they also had love poetry. So Solomon didn't invent love poetry. Um, but... In the other love, love poetry, there was, no, there was no conversation. You notice in this passage, there's so many words where they're saying things to each other. Last week, it was even more words. It was like a screenplay more than a plot. And uh, in, in the Egyptian and Canaanite narratives about sexuality, it was all about fertility and pleasure. And so in that sense, the, uh, the biblical view here is, uh, is very distinct. And uh, it's a very clear vision. It's a very countercultural vision, as is that vision today, and it's a very redemptive vision of sexuality. 
So uh, Phyllis Tribble was a, a great Old Testament scholar who taught at Wake Forest for many years. Some of you might have had Phyllis Tribble, but uh, I, I read a lot of her books in seminary. And she says that the Song of Songs is like reversing the curse that occurred uh, in the Garden of Eden when we fell. And she says that in the Song of Songs, you see mutuality and love, nakedness without shame, as we see in this passage. And you have equality without duplication. In other words, they're, they're equal, but they're not duplicates. Uh, you, you see that this boy and this girl, this, the Song of Songs is about these two teenagers, a boy and a girl. They're equal, absolutely equal in dignity, uh, but they're not duplicates of each other. And so she, Phyllis Tribble says this is the story of a boy and a girl headed towards marriage. And it, it actually undoes, it's like rolling back the curse, or it's like putting them back in the Garden of Eden. That's kind of the big picture of what the Song of Songs is about. And in this particular passage, this is about her fantasy about her wedding day. So this passage and next week are both dreams. Uh, this is not in chronological order. These, these are fantasies she's having before she gets married about that marriage. And in verses 6 through 11 of chapter 3, it's about her wedding day, the actual ceremony. And then in chapter 4, verses 1 through 4, and I stopped there for a reason. Uh, you can look at verse 5 and see why they won't have all of it read. But that's about her wedding night. So wedding day and then wedding night. Pretty simple. So first of all, the wedding day. Uh, verse 11. Go out, O daughters of Zion, and look upon King Solomon on the day of his wedding. And the word wedding is only used right there in the book. So it's the only time wedding is used. So this is the uh, picture of their wedding. This is like an idealized wedding. And um, there's a stereotype that women think more about their actual wedding ceremony than men. And I think that's actually a true stereotype. From my anecdotal evidence, it's 100% true. I've never met, I've never met, and I'm not saying that's not always true, but I have never met the opposite of that. And certainly in this case, she is fantasizing uh, that her boyfriend, soon to be husband, fiance, uh, that he is King Solomon. So it's kind of like imagining that you're. Kate and your husband is Prince William and you're walking down Westminster Abbey. It's kind of like a young, uh, like a teenager imagining that. Makes a lot of sense. So there's a crowd in Jerusalem standing in the city and they look out and verse 6 says, what is this coming up from the wilderness? So they see this, all these people gathered um, and they're waiting on tiptoe and, they, and then they say, behold, it is a litter of Solomon. And litter just means a, a wedding carriage. So it's Solomon on his litter coming into Jerusalem. And it's, like a, it's literally like a dream husband. Uh, he is the idealized husband. It says in verse 6, there are columns of smoke. So it's literally like a dream. Uh, perfumed with myrrh and frankincense. Notice those are the two of the spices that they brought to Jesus. Uh, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. These are from Arabia and India. They're very, very expensive. So... Um, the wood is from Lebanon, verse 9. The posts are of silver. Uh, gold is the back of the seat. The, the purple cloth. Purple cloth was extremely rare. It was a sign of royalty. Um, my friend went to a $600,000 wedding recently. $600,000. Couldn't believe that. But that's, what, that's what it was. It was on this uh, elite island resort. And when I heard about it, I thought, that is unnecessary opulence. Like, that is too luxurious. But as I read this passage, I was like, that's actually nothing compared to this fantasy that she's having. And it, this is like inspired by the Holy Spirit. Okay, so this is, 
This, this fantasy of gold, silver, Lebanese wood, and purple, and all that, this is extremely luxurious. The most luxurious wedding you can imagine. It is like Princess Kate uh, and William. And not only is it luxurious, it's personalized. In verse 10, it says the interior of the carriage was inlaid with love by the daughters of Jerusalem. I'm I'm reading the ESV, English Standard Version. The interior was inlaid with love by her friends. In other words, she got, the husband has her bridesmaids come and then like paint the interior of the carriage with scenes from their dating life. Something like that. It's inlaid with love. It's very personalized. So this is the opposite of a husband who gives his wife a vacuum for their anniversary. This is a very romantic man. That's what she's fantasizing about. She wants a husband who will care as much about romance as about his workplace or his career or his financial status or his favorite sports team. This is a woman that wants the husband's best mental energy focused to celebrate her and their relationship. And this is inspired by the Holy Spirit. So clearly it's a challenge to all of us who are dating or married that buying roses and writing notes and planning dates is a very good thing. It's, scripture underwrites that idea, that this is a very good thing. An overnight getaway in Charleston, for instance, is one thing that would be really good. Or in Asheville or someplace that you love. Um, these are things that scripture is essentially saying to anyone who uh, loves their wife or their fiancé or girlfriend that they ought to be doing these things. This is a call to those of us. A call that is, uh, that is a, to me, is very challenging. This is not something that I necessarily do very well. But uh, we, as, uh, we as people who are, if, if you're married or dating or anything like that, this, this is something that I think God wants us to pursue, clearly, in this passage. Not only that, but in verse 7, there are 60 mighty men. So again, this is her fantasizing, but inspired by the Spirit, fantasy, There are these mighty men of Israel, 60 men. In other words, it's very safe. It's very protected. Whatever bandits could come in or animals, uh, she is fantasizing about protection. And uh, again, this kind of uh, gets into cultural stereotypes. It's not that she's weak and it's not that she's lazy. But there is a sense in which she is vulnerable in a way that he is not. It's just true of a woman and her body, that there's a vulnerability there that he does not have. And so she wants safety from her fiancé, from her husband, that is psychological, emotional safety, financial safety, and especially physical safety. And so if a husband is doing anything to jeopardize the physical safety of their wife, that's clearly the exact opposite of what is going on in this passage. That is extremely counter to the vision of the Bible about what a husband should be like. In the presence of a husband, the wife should feel entirely safe. Or the girlfriend or the fiancé. And if there's an intruder in the night, um, verse 8 says that his sword is at his thigh against the terror of the night. If an intruder comes to our house, I should not say to my wife, to Margie, I wish you get up and go outside and see what's going on out there. That's not right. Okay, This is not an equality Uh, of the genders in this case. This is the case where the man goes out and protects the wife. And that doesn't just apply to that. It applies to other things as well. But clearly, this is a divinely inspired desire that a woman has. Again, she's not weak. Uh, She works hard. She's very... She's she's not lazy. Um, She's not frightened. She's actually very bold and assertive. We're going to see that later. But she does want protection, and rightly so. But I think more than any of those things, she wants him to be happy. 
Uh, Verse 11, look at Solomon's gladness of heart on the day of his wedding. I think more than anything, she wants on the day of the wedding um, for her husband to have gladness of heart, which is like a deep inner mirth is the way it's defined. A deep inner mirth, M-I-R-T-H, which is the opposite of compulsion. She wants a husband who is down there because he wants to be there. You know, when, whenever the, uh, the wedding, I do a wedding, the doors open and she comes, the bride starts to come down, everybody stands up. And the husband is always to my left and he's always smiling, sometimes crying. I've never seen one that had like their fists clenched and their like, teeth were gritted. Like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get through this. I'm going to make it through this. You do not want a husband doing that. You want to see a husband's face glowing with joy and mirth and deep inner gladness. Um, beaming with pleasure. So this is the, this is the ideal. There's a lot of other things you can do with your wedding. But these are elements of the wedding that she is fantasizing about when she thinks about her wedding day. And it's good. It's inspired by the Spirit. Uh, they're not living together. They're not going out with friends that night. Uh, it's not a big party, which is what a lot of weddings just simply are like a big party. That's all pretty much they are. It's centered on um, this redemptive, sacred Event In verse 11 says he wears the crown. And a lot of Jewish weddings, actually this is true of Eastern Orthodox weddings too. If you've been to a Jewish wedding or an Eastern Orthodox wedding, if they really are serious about their faith, they wear actually crowns on their head. It's really beautiful. Um, they, the groom and the bride are like returning to, to Eden. So it's like Adam and Eve. They wear these crowns to show that they are royalty. And that's what's going on here. He wears the crown. So that's the wedding day. And now the rest of the fantasy is the wedding night where he's about to see her in all of her glory. And the scene skips ahead, you know, maybe a few hours. And by the way, back then when they did this, they would have this huge wedding party. The, the, the parties went on for a long time, more than a day. Um, and they would go to a tent that was like it was their tent. And um, they would go, they would consummate their marriage, they would come out, and all the friends would rejoice. They would cheer them on. Um, so that's what's going on here. So in verse 1, they're alone now. They're in the tent. And uh, it says, Behold, you are beautiful, my love. Behold, you are beautiful. This is her fantasizing about him talking to her. Her fantasy, right? But it's him talking about her. Which I think is really wonderful. Behold, you are beautiful, my love. Behold, you're beautiful. And he starts to move from her head down, inspired by the Spirit, approved by God. And again, this is like a brief return to naked and unashamed. They were naked and unashamed in the garden, and now they're returning to being naked and unashamed again. And she wants him, this is her thinking about this, she wants him to notice every detail of her physical beauty. Uh, We are not souls that are trapped in bodies. We are as much a body as we are a soul. And so she wants him to see her in her nakedness and her beauty. And this is, by the way, this is not the objectification of his wife. This is the opposite of objectification. This is him seeing her particularity as a glorious image bearer. I'm talking about her personally. Uh, That is not the same thing at all as treating her as an object of his pleasure. Okay, so this is her wanting him to see all the specifics. And she wants him to be creative about it. Uh, notice the creativity here. Verse 1, doves. Your eyes are like doves. It conveys softness and tenderness. 
So her particular eyes are shaped like a dove. And as I go through these things, I would challenge you uh, to do this for anyone that you are dating or married to. Uh, it's actually an, an ancient poem called a wasp, W-A-S-P. It's uh, hard to say that. Uh, no, W-A-S-F, wasp. Not a wasp, but a wasp. And it's a kind of ancient poetry. We still find these things in the Near East today. And they would go through a person's uh, body and describe and compare everything to something else. So uh, last time I preached the Song of Songs, several couples did this. And one of them got married during it. And they had their wasps like, up um, in, the, in the wedding reception. So I, I would encourage you to do this. Write a wasp. Her, um, the, the hair is like goats streaming down the mountain. In other words, lush flowing hair. This, uh, just like the, wet, the, the movement of the goats flowing down the mountain. He's describing her hair. Her eyes are like doves. Her hair is this lush flowing movement of goats coming down the mountain. Her teeth are glistening white like twin sheep. They're white and they're symmetrical. That's why they're twin. So her teeth are symmetrical, which... Um, would have been an even bigger deal back then without dentists and orthodontists. Her lips, uh, verse 3, are deep red like scarlet. Her cheeks have a smooth, rosy complexion, verse 3, in the shape of a pomegranate. Kind of rounded, rosy cheeks. Her neck is grand, verse 4, and strong and dignified and elegant. He's describing all the different parts of her body. One of the commentators uh, said she is a picture of proud reticence and provocative liveliness. It's kind of this combination of proud reticence and provocative liveliness. And if you've ever looked at a human being and just been smitten by their beauty, so is God. God looks at our bodies and is blown away by what he's made. Because he didn't make anything else like it. We are made in God's image. We're not just made in God's image with our minds or our souls, but our bodies. Our very bodies are imaging God. They're imaging forth God. And the Song of Songs is an attack on all religion of anatomical shame. Any kind of religion you're raised in uh, that treats the body um, kind of like a husk of flesh in which the soul is encased. Uh, That's what one commentator called it. if, 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 a, if a religious tradition is treating the body like that, it is not faithful to the living God. Um, some of us grew up with, I mentioned this last week, you know, we don't, we don't mention certain body parts in our family. Uh, some of you grew up that way. Uh, you certainly didn't talk about anything too sexual. And what is, the, what is a child hearing there? What is, the, what, is, what is being communicated? That there's something wrong or dirty about the sexual parts of our body or sexual behavior. Um, so if you... If you feel awkward about talking about your body or others' bodies, then read the Song of Songs multiple times. Um, And tell your wife about her physical beauty. Um, You know, not your body is a wonderland. You can do better than that. Um, Not you're so hot, you know, or you're a 10. Um, But more like, I love the curve of your face. You know, I love the particular curve, or I love the shape of your nose. Um, I love the color of your eyes. You can compare it to things. It's not easy. But maybe do it for the date that you're going to take her on. And it's good to think a long time about the metaphors. You don't have to use sheep or pomegranates. In fact, those probably don't work today as well as they did back then. Because we don't have much experience with sheep and pomegranates. Um, but 
in reading this wasp, she is um, filled with sexual desire. And here's the amazing thing about the Song of Songs. The, the dead center number of words, okay, the very dead center of the Song of Songs. And I didn't, I didn't have this read this evening, but if you, if you count before and after, if you get right to the center of the song. And in Hebrew, they love things called chiasms that were like a... They're like an X. So all these psalms and stories in Genesis and the Song of Songs, it's like a, a, a pattern like A, B, C, D, E, uh, and then back, uh, D, C, uh, B, A. It's like an X pattern. And right in the dead center of this chiasm, which is the Song of Songs, is their act of sex, is the act of fulfillment of their sexual desire. And Listen to the way that the Song of Songs describes it. Um, This is her talking. She says, awake north wind and come south wind. So she's asking for this experience. Awake and come. And there's this idea out there that men are more sexual than women. And that men are always kind of dangerously filled with lust. And you've got to watch out for men. And that is just completely a lie. And the Bible shows that it's a lie. She, she wants this at least as much as him. She's calling for this. So erase that lie in your mind that men are more sexual than women. And then in verse 16, blow upon my garden, let its spices flow. That's her again. She's wanting that. And she's comparing it to a garden and spices. And so the idea that women are there to help men get pleasure is absurd and obscene too. This is not what sex is about. She wants this. It's, it's, it's wonderful to her. She takes enormous pleasure in it, like a garden of spices. And then finally, uh, verse 16, make my garden breathe out fragrance. Let its spices flow. There's a, there's a desire for herself to express herself in this way. Almost like worship. You know, it's not to guard her husband from looking at porn or having an affair, which is this idea that you get in a lot of Christian literature about sexuality. That's not what this is about at all. This is about the two of them having mutual pleasure in each other's bodies. And God doesn't just barely approve of sexuality. Um, He celebrates it. I love in verse 1 of chapter 5 where they come out of the tent and their friends say, Eat, friends, and drink. Drink your fill of love. That's not just God saying, Yeah, it's okay. Go go ahead. Uh, You can do that every now and then. This is like celebrating Sex as one of his, if not his greatest creation. Um, it's certainly not a detour from spiritual life. You know, like, well, we, you know, this, we were praying and reading the Bible, and then to do that is like something that is not quite spiritual. It's like physical, it's kind of crude, and you kind of move away from God when you move from reading the Bible or praying or meditating into sex. But actually, the Bible treats it more like worship. That it is part of spiritual life. Why would it not be? To think that it would not be would be to split the body from the soul, which the Bible never does. So this is an act of worship, which is the very reason it's so important to protect it within the covenant of a marriage. Because it is so beautiful. Now, having said all that, having said all that, um, there could be a lot of shame associated with sex. This is why last week we prayed about that before the Song of Songs series, a lot of guilt. And, and trauma as well. And so as I talk about all these wonderful things about sex, obviously people are thanking themselves, not for me. It was not wonderful. Uh, you know, maybe you've never had it. Maybe you didn't want it when you had it. 
Maybe you can't even think about it. I mean, somebody in their prayer request said, uh, pray for me because I'm feeling like I'm going to be triggered by this sermon series on the song of songs. And I totally understand that. Especially in our culture today, there was so much abuse going on, even in churches. And I say all that because the point of this whole book is not primarily about human sexuality. It is not. In fact, uh, the translation that Doug read from, the Passion Translation, I would, I would encourage you to get that. The author of the translation, the whole translation is about the celebration be- between God and his people for which sex is the best metaphor. But it's essentially the union of God and humanity. It's Yahweh's call to his people Israel. It's Christ's call to the church to come away and be my beloved. Essentially, all of sex is not the point, but, the, but a pointer to God's love for his people. In Ephesians 5.32, Paul says, The mystery is profound of the marriage between a man and a woman. But I am telling you that it refers primarily to Christ and the church. So there's biblical warrant. Remember, we love these rascals.